Hi, welcome to the How Might We podcast. I'm John Barnes. Okay, a few updates. Uh, first is to say that my newsletter and blog are going to be becoming a lot more consistent over the coming weeks and months. So you can sign up to the newsletter on my website. That's johnbarnes.me. And at first, the main topic I'm covering in a, in a series of posts uh, are topics related to my new book, Tech Monopolies, A Short Rant About Addictive Design. And I'm really excited because I am now posting off uh, copies to my first customers and readers and supporters this week. Or rather, I'd be better off saying that my eight-year-old is going to be posting off uh, these copies so that he can make a little bit of pocket money for that Harry Potter wand that he wants so badly. Um, so I've got to say that doing this myself is just so rewarding. Every time I receive an email saying that somebody has bought it uh, and is is personally supporting my work, uh, it's so rewarding and I feel so grateful for those those of you who are doing that. And I can't wait for people to start reading the book and, and sending feedback and, and thoughts around that. Um, I'll be sending a few extra treats in the postal packages, um, which is really fun as well. So as I've said before, the book isn't available on Amazon and that is by design. It's a conscious decision uh, in keeping with the topic of the book, really. So if you'd like to get a paperback copy, you can do so by ordering it through my website. Um, my friend's company is printing it and my little boy is posting it. And that's really a part of what I'm trying to do here. And it feels really great. If you'd like a digital copy, it's available for those supporting this project on a monthly pay what you want basis on Patreon. And that button is on my website too. Finally, there's also a new talk published covering some of the themes from the book. And you can find that on the Tech Monopolies page in the book section of my website. So go and take a look. I'm really excited to be sharing this um, with the world and I, I can't wait to start hearing back from a lot of you. Uh, and the, f the feedback so far has just been, been really nice, really. Okay, so on to today's episode. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Brennan Jacobi. He's a philosopher and the founder of Philosophy at Work. Brennan holds a BA in philosophy from Spring Arbor University and an MA in philosophy from Western Michigan and a PhD in philosophy from Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. His PhD focused on trust in interpersonal and organisational contexts, which is something we'll talk about in our conversation. Originally, Brennan is from Detroit, Michigan, and he now lives in Oxford and London, where he runs Philosophy at Work, an organisation that helps companies and their people to think their best, really, and to do more meaningful work. Brennan helps companies through his public speaking, facilitated idea development and team building sessions, and his training workshops that give teams the thinking tools needed to take their critical thinking and decision making and curiosity um, to, to better and higher standards. And, and I, I think this conversation is, is a good way of seeing just how, how equipped he is to do that. He's also a long-standing faculty member at the School of Life in London, which is where I met him. So ad additionally to this, I think it's difficult not to notice just how kind a person Brennan is. And I really enjoyed speaking to him. I found our conversation fascinating, actually, because I really believe that the predominant work culture is in need of better thinking and that this is important for effectiveness and success in organisations, as well as for our health, our well-being, and because of some of the important ethical considerations 
that naturally come when when we exercise better thinking. So we go through a load of topics um, in this conversation. The first uh, is mainly around trust, which is one of Brennan's real domains of expertise. And then we go into the relationship between trust and transparency, where where Brennan surprisingly manages to shift uh, some of my pretty strong held perspectives on transparency. And he, I think he adds a lot of nuance to my beliefs there. Um, so you, you can see him kind of unpick me, which I think is really fun. Um, we also talk about the value of better questions and training that as a practice in organizations, something that Brennan does a lot and, and I think is really interesting. Um, and finally, maybe we, we also talk about the nature of reality, where perhaps, as Brennan put it in, his, in the conversation, we kind of went into the long grass maybe a little bit too much. Although perhaps uh, with, with this opportunity in the introduction, I can circle back a, a bit on that because uh, I don't think I succeeded in doing it very well in the conversation. And I think the point I, I want to make and I failed to make is that I believe that asking ourselves the question, what is real at work is really vital because it allows us to question a lot of obsolete norms and assumptions and stories that are held in organizations. So for instance, we, we often have this idea that things are like this around here. I'm doing quote marks. Um, and typically those things, I believe, are often just stories. Stories like organizational charts, hierarchies, growth-based goals. These are all givens and they're more often than not all fictions. And by questioning them, we can create uh, new norms that serve us better in many instances. So anyway, I just wanted to clarify that because for that particular part of the conversation, I perhaps didn't do a great job of relating back to Brennan's focus and expertise when it comes to philosophy at work. Um, but hopefully I've clarified that a bit here. And regardless, I think it's a really fun and interesting part in our conversation. Um, there's loads more that we wanted to cover, like the role of language, the idea of democracy at work, ethics, and, and a lot more. And so we're planning on doing a second part to this conversation. But until then, I really recommend you check out Brennan's website. That's philosophyatwork.co.uk. I've put that in the description to this episode alongside a link to um, an event in London that Brennan is running that I really recommend to London listeners. Um, and that is called Sex, Religion and Brexit, How to Have Good Conversations About Awkward Things. And I'm, I'm gutted I can't be there because that sounds a lot of fun. Again, if you do enjoy uh, this podcast, please remember to rate it on your podcast app. You can also support the podcast by subscribing to my newsletter at johnbarnes.me. You can share it on social media or with friends. And finally, if you feel you can support on a financial basis, you can do so on a monthly pay-what-you-want basis. Uh, the support button is on my website. But for now, I want to give you my conversation that I just thoroughly enjoyed with Dr. Brennan Jacobi. And I've entitled our conversation, How Might We Use Philosophy at Work? Enjoy! Hello, Brennan. Hey, how are you doing, John? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, thanks so much for getting back in touch as well. I, do you know what? Meeting you, um, even those years and years ago, has really stuck with me. I don't know. Um, I think the fact that, you know, at the end of the session at School of Life, you uh, approached me and, and had some kind words um, was part of it. But anyway, it's, it's been really great to uh, see what you've been up to a bit since then. And um, yeah, I'm keen to hear more. 
Thanks. Well, I've, I biased you with some, some early kindness, maybe. So, <laughs> Perhaps. That way you'll look at me through that frame. Well, that's yeah. brilliant. Thanks. No, I'm really, I'm really excited about this conversation. I feel like, uh, feel like it's, um, we're up for a maybe slightly different podcast interview than I normally have. Normally there's a kind of story and a thread to it. Here okay. my sense is that what would be great is to um, ask you to set some context for, for me and for listeners up front. And then I think with some of the pre-work that I sent you, I've more or less got uh, a list of topics that I'm fascinated in. And I think our over, you and I have a, a, a kind of weirdly strong overlap and yet totally different thing going on, which mm. I think is really great. Um, yeah. This idea of bringing better thinking to organizations is, is I think, really important. And it's, it's what, what I'm into. Uh, you, you just come at it fully trained. <laughs> well, tra training can sometimes, um, well, no, tra that's a good thing. I shouldn't be apologetic, but sometimes, you know, there's something to be said for not having your brain addled with um, uh, certain approaches, you know, and having it be organic. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I certainly feel I, I benefit at times from my, uh, from my lack of training or for my style, where, like my self-taught style of training, let's say. Yeah. Um, but there are, there are moments where, where I think I, I'd love to go and study philosophy at depth. So may, maybe oh. today can be my micro PhD or something. Yeah, amazing. Cool. <laughs> All right, brilliant. Well, how, how about we start with, um, with you giving some context um, well, partly because we've not caught up for a while, so why don't you give me and the listeners some context about what you're up to, what philosophy at work is, how you kind of got to it, um, and that, that should give us some, some good foundations for our conversation, I think. Certainly. So Philosophy at Work is the company that I started to help people do their best thinking. And it really comes from an understanding of philosophy as being the sort of science and art all wrapped up into one of making sense of life. So if you go right back to what philosophy means as a word, it just means the love of wisdom, philo, philo being the, the Greek word for love, Sophia being wisdom, and philosophers try to make sense of life uh, using a particular set of tools. So while uh, you know, scientists will use certain tools, psychologists will use other tools, um, I mean, going right back, they were all, all one, but these days, philosophers tend to use uh, th thought-based tools, so thinking tools. So what I do with philosophy at work is I work with individuals uh, specifically in the workspace, so companies and their people, to help them do their best thinking um, so that they can navigate uh, uncertainty, so that they can make sense of themselves, their work. Um, so a lot of it comes into places where people are working on strategy or they're trying to uh, communicate their ideas clearly. Um, it comes in when they're trying to uh, build trust, for example, because they're trying to understand a really sort of um, complex relationship. So working with people in that way, the way that I got into it um, is a little bit of a longer story. I'll give you the nutshell version. Um, <laughs> I was studying communications and specifically radio broadcasting. And I was at a liberal arts university, so in the US, uh, where I had to sit in on a bit of everything, which I think was really valuable. And I took an intro to philosophy class while I was doing that. I came across people that were just sort of asking questions that struck me as really important and um, thinking in ways that on the one hand felt quite natural to me and sort of commonsensical, but then at the other, other sides felt like, 
oh, they're doing this really well. <laughs> so it felt like there was something for me to, to learn. And I thought maybe if I switch my major and learn how to think, then I can come back to radio and have more to say. And I think that, that uh, trajectory, that sort of way of thinking has stuck with me and is at the core of everything I'm doing now with philosophy at work. So while I haven't made it back to radio, I just kept going on with philosophy and, and now doing this. Um, at the heart of everything I'm doing is this view that whatever your work is, um, if you're thinking your best, that's going to be really valuable in whatever you're doing. So I've worked with people from, um, you know, financial services firms, communications agencies, um, accountants, uh, people in the music industry, right over to um, the Saracens Rugby Club, for example, where, um, which very interestingly, these guys have a, um, have a philosophy club that meets once a month after they have training. And so I got to come in and work with them on how they think about trust and sort of what that means for them as they're trusting each other to, to sort of take the hard hits for them uh, when they're playing a match. So I think it, it really is important across the board uh, because everyone needs to think. We all sort of do philosophy, but um, we can do it better and that's going to be really useful. So um, in a nutshell, that's how I've come into it. Um, there's a bit more I can say. I'm sure we'll get into it. Well, maybe a bit more about who, I'm curious as to who you kind of end up working with. Like, is it, is it a CEO that'll, that'll ask you to come and sort of fine tune their thinking a bit or like who's, who's, who's bringing you in for what kind of problem normally? Yeah, right. So there's a range of things. Um, it will tend to be people that are faced with uh, complex challenges. And, and on the one hand, that's, ever, that's all of us. Um, you know, I mean, how, if, you're, if you're sort of on the front, front facing, front lines of a company, the way that you deal with a customer on the phone is a complex thing and can be really challenging. So yeah. that's relevant. But I do tend to get brought in by people who are um, CEOs, managers, leaders running the company because they're thinking about um, strategy. They are a lot of, I, guess, I suppose the nature of their work is in a sense, um, they're, they're very, very, very aware of the degree to which the way that they think and the way that they understand matters. So it matters to all of us, but I think it's a little bit more on their plate, if that makes sense. So mm. oftentimes it'll be a CEO who brings me in uh, saying, you know, we've got, I'm doing a session with my directors and um, want to get them all in the room for a morning and talk about our strategy or, um, you know, we've got some sort of woolly issues to get through. And we like the idea of having a philosopher in the room, making sure we're asking the right questions and sort of drawing out our, our thinking um, and helping us do that better. So I do a lot of facilitation at that level, but then there's another group of people um, who are strategists. So working in, let's say, creative agencies and, and advertising firms, um, doing strategy for their clients and helping their clients really navigate complex things. Um, and uh, I work a lot with those people because their job is really under, in, the nature of the job is all about understanding. So, you know, uh, I met with a strategist a couple of weeks ago who said, uh, you know, if you're a strategist, you just have to be like reading and watching and listening to everything. And you just sort of flood yourself with information and then uh, that you put it together in different ways and that gives you, gives you your work um, that you help with clients. And so for them, for someone to come in and say, oh, let me, help you think maybe a bit differently or give you a, an interesting perspective on this topic that you're trying to help your clients with, um, that's really valuable to them. So, so leaders, uh, strategists, but then also just sort of 
right across the company, I might be brought in by an HR lead or a learning and development lead because they're saying we want our people to be making um, smart decisions or we want them to be able to, to listen really well because we're sort of losing efficiency at the point of um, having difficult conversations or people aren't having those conversations. There's elephants in the room and um, they're, right. the trust is sort of lacking, so collaboration's dropping off. And so I'll come in and do training uh, with, with crews, uh, you know, different project teams or whatever. So um, maybe an unsatisfactory answer because like my previous one of saying that, you know, everyone needs to think well. Um, it's kind of working with everyone, but, you, but usually it's a, it's a CEO or a, an HR lead. Yeah, and does the term, the terms philosophy and work, I guess, mm. I don't, well, I don't know about you, but I personally have this, because I come from, let's say I come from work and you come mm. from philosophy, I'm like obviously creating a, a silly simplification, but then uh, the, they sometimes feel either contrasting, perhaps ethically sometimes, yeah, or, right. they, or they feel just like different operation modes. And I, I think that's because we have like a, well, I certainly have like stereotypical images in my head of uh, a philosophy being a, a slow contemplation at life where work is something that's being done quickly and is stressful and, and whatever. How, how do those terms sit with each other when you're meeting organizations and the philosopher comes into the room? Yeah, yeah really, really great question. It's one that I've um, turned over many times in my, my own mind as well. Um, so the way that I... Well, the way that I think about philosophy at work as a, as a title is not just that I'm helping people do philosophy in their workplace, but that it's also, <clears throat> excuse me, it's also philosophy that is getting stuff done. So, mm. so you know, there's sort of two meanings it's, it, to, the, to the brand name, really. It's philosophy at work, so we're doing philosophy at work, but it's also philosophy that is at work. You know, it's philosophy that is yeah. um, being, it is the philosophy that's helping us to do stuff. Um, the philosophy it itself is at work, you know. Um, and I think that's really important because so often we assume that philosophy is maybe this thing that we're glad someone somewhere, probably in, ivory, in an ivory tower, is doing, but which mm. is not really critical to the day-to-day. -day. So it might be something, you know, maybe we pick up a popular philosophy book, um, get a really nice coffee on the weekend, and, um, and that's nice, and it's a bit of a refuel. But, you know, Monday to Friday or whatever it is for you, you know, uh, got lots to do, thank you very much, and we'll sort of put that to the side. And I, I really take your point that um, work traditionally, well, not, yeah, traditionally has been a, a space of busyness, I think that's changing though. I think, um, you know, I would be a liar if I didn't say that work today is incredibly busy. I think people are really struggling to juggle all of that. And technologic, te technological advancement has, has been a great help, but it's also contributed to that. We feel like there's a lot of things that we have to keep our eye on now. Um, but even that said, I think more and more of us are recognizing the value of slowing work down so, mm, um, you know, having a sort of slow work movement in a sense where we need to take time to reflect, um, mm. you know, to, to press pause and say, all right, how do I, uh, how do I come into this? Yeah, I've got lots to do. It's the, the last thing that I feel I have time to do is to stop and be um, considerate. Um, right. It's like the most important thing that you have to do. Yeah. Right. It's the most important thing. I mean, it, if I could just tell you a very quick story, I yeah. um, 
over the the winter break just a couple months ago um i really wanted to take a day out where i was just you know just completely refueling right and and i um so i'm married i have two young sons so one's three and a half one's one and a half so really sort of like busy times at home as well and i was like i just i think it's important for me to take a day out um I don't know if it sounds selfish to people, but I just want to have a day out, go, you know, go away to someplace wild. And, um, and that feels like it's going to be refueling. So uh, I meant to do it at the start of the break. It didn't happen until the end of the break, but it still happened. Woke up really early one day. So the four thirty in the morning or something, got in the car and drove out to Wales, um, hiked up a mountain and, um, and hiked back down and then got home for dinner. And, you know, I'm, I'm in this line of work where I'm, I'm helping people, think and everything but it still struck me like gosh how busy have, have i become too and i felt like i didn't have time to do that i felt like there was more important things that i needed to get on with but actually uh, i got a lot more done in terms of um forward thinking and even strategy about my work and clarity on certain projects um just taking the time to do that because i sort of you know was, was hiking but also making that space for me to think a bit about work so um, yeah, it was the last thing I felt that I had time to do, but it was so much more effective than if I had set aside even two days in the office to go, right, let's crunch these numbers. So. But I feel like what you're saying is is like weirdly common sense and yet transformative. There's so many groups I work with where at the end, I'll quite often try and get them to take some form of concrete action. And like, they look at their diaries and there's like, well, I can't, you know, I'm too busy. So I'll just mm. say like, we'll delete three meetings next week then. Like, cause, cause you, you're doing, you're doing too much. And quite often, I think we'll talk, we'll get onto a conversation about what, what's real and what's not later. But one thing that's not real is our to-do lists that, that mm. often total works of fiction. I wake up mm. after a good sleep and lots of dreaming. And I have this really long to-do list that just popped up in my mind, you know, whilst I was sleeping. Mm -hmm. And then, then it's likely if I'm not mindful that I'll go and live my next day according to the made up to-do list. Yeah. When actually what I could have done is uh, like had a slow coffee, taken it easy. And actually I'd have less to do simply because I'm not rushing around creating things to do. Like the to-do yeah. list is, needn't be created in the first place quite often. Yeah, And that, that perspective is something that I think a lot of working cultures, I agree that it's better, there's some awareness around it, but um, mm. I think we're, we're pretty far off from, mm. from well, I mean, we, we talk about self-managed organizations, but we've, we've just not learned to manage ourselves as, as yeah. just as units of one quite often. Yeah, really, really nicely put, um, self-managed, but not managing ourselves. Um, picking up on something that you said at the start just then, um, I think comes back also to how we understand the terms of philosophy and work and how it comes together. So, you know, you said it feels sort of oddly commonsensical what we're saying, but it's critical. And I think that's true um, of how I understand philosophy and, and work. Um, sometimes philosophy can seem like it's this super intellectualized uh, kind of distant thing that you have to, I don't know, you have to know Greek history to make sense of it or something like that. Um, but in fact, philosophy, if it is just trying to understand and make sense, then that is stuff that every human being does every single day. And so each of us in our work is already doing philosophy. We're already, we already have, you could say, a philosophy or a, a way of thinking. We already have, uh, some people talk about worldviews, you know, ways of seeing the world um, that are there. 
And I think the, the underlying belief running in the background of philosophy is that um, we need to work out ways of doing that better. And so mm. what I'm doing with philosophy at work is coming to people's companies and saying, look, actually, you're, all, you're already doing this, but there are people throughout history that have spent their lives working out how to do this as best as possible. And so um, it's not that we're too busy to think. We're already thinking, and actually, it often takes the same, right. if not more time to think poorly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're, so you're not saying to add something new here. You're just saying to do something that you already do better than you do it. And in fact, that'll, that'll cut, to the, cut through the, the noise and you'll, you'll get to the right answer often quicker, certainly better. Yeah, so we, we, have a, we, have a set of, we all have a set of beliefs that we use to help us navigate life. And that's, you know, that's just how it is. And that's really normal. And, uh, but we, we don't often question those beliefs. Like, you know, you're, what you just said about to-do lists is a great one. Yeah, gosh, I have a massive to-do to -do list today. Um, and uh, I really like that idea of sort of talking about it as not real. So that's, that's already starting to reframe a belief that I have mm. about to-do lists. And, you know, to get there, that took the time of us having this conversation. Um, so that does take time and is challenging when we're busy. But going forward now, it doesn't take any more time for me to hold that belief in my head than to hold the belief that to do this are the taskmasters, you know, right, and, yeah. but, but it has a big impact on, on where I go. So I think, you know, if we, if we see philosophy as this um, intellectualized thing uh, that is, that is somehow at war with work, then that's, that's, that's untrue. But I think it's also, it's not, it's not helpful. But if we can see it as saying, actually, it's, it's just how we understand life and navigate it, then it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll get on to asking better questions as one topic of conversation. Um, I want to I wanna jump into what you mentioned beliefs. And yeah. um, when I was doing a bit of prep for this conversation, I think I mentioned to you, I have one, one strongly held belief that I, I like uh, reading mm. some of your work. I, okay. I felt that wobble in my body where someone's about to challenge something I've really felt strongly about for a long time. Okay. And, that, yeah. and that's transparency. Um, yeah. But maybe to get to transparency, let's talk a little bit first about your work with trust, because I think that's what you've, you've studied with, with most specialism. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So I did my PhD on trust. And uh, just quickly, the way that it, that, that came about um, is uh, as I got into studying philosophy, I was really interested in the human side of philosophy. So not just logic and sort of um, that part of philosophy that tends almost into mathematics, but the, the questions around saying, well, gosh, why do people believe the things they do? Where do these thoughts come from? Um, that's really interesting to me. And so that pushed me towards the sides of uh, philosophy that deal with kind of relational things. And so when I was doing my master's, I focused on ethics. And then, um, and then there was an opportunity to do a PhD on betrayal. And uh, I went to do that, um, went to Australia, to Macquarie University. So, you know, originally from the US, uh, wanted to live abroad and travel and everything. And, and so um, went to Australia to do that. And it was uh, you know amazing opportunity. But while I was there, you know, if you're gonna study betrayal, you have to talk about trust. And so that got me into trust. Um, and then on the back of that, uh, it was just after 2008, uh, everything had sort of crashed and people were going, ah, who do we trust anymore? We don't, you know, what do we do with this? And so I started um, just having conversations with people that were in workplaces that were 
trying to sort that out. And um, whether it was sort of companies that had lost the public's trust or internally, everyone was sort of working in silos or wanting to collaborate better. And so, uh, so yeah, I started working on trust. And through that, people were going, oh, this, you know, we, we appreciate the trust stuff, but actually we like how you're making us think differently about it. Right. So, um, so that was sort of one of the ways that made me go, okay, actually, maybe as a philosopher, I can, I can help people think, um, think clearly about things other than trust as well. And at the same time, I was seeing that, gosh, there's a lot going on in the world where I feel like we, we all kind of need to press pause and, and just think a bit more. And so uh, that was one of the, the seeds for philosophy at work. Um, so I guess with the trust stuff, because I'm coming at it from a philosophical angle, which is to say, you know, the first step in philosophy, maybe not the first ingredient of philosophy, um, but the first step is to define your terms. And a lot of what we do in philosophy is to say, what do we mean by that? <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, so when I'm working with groups on trust, a lot of times it's saying, you know, before we go about actually building trust, or if you're, you know, if it's a strategy lead who's trying to help their client build trust, um, then uh, I'll work a lot with them to say, well, what is this thing you're trying to build? What do we mean by this? And so transparency comes in a lot because so often we um, run the two together, I think. Well, more specifically, we run transparency and trustworthiness together. So there's a lot of reports and, and blogs and articles. Are you distinguishing trust and trustworthiness there? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I would say trust is a thing that we do you can you can give trust to someone else it's something that you feel i can i can feel uh sort of trusting towards you or i can feel uh reticent and sort of untrusting towards you um but trustworthiness is and it's more of an attribute so i don't sort of give trustworthiness maybe i can give off trustworthiness to someone else um but i am trustworthy or i'm not trustworthy or i i can you know, a, a company can be trustworthy or not. Um, All right. So I, so I can trust you, but it's for you to decide whether I am trustworthy. Yes. Right. And yeah. um, right. And well, and and I think there's even a little bit more we can say there. It's for me to decide if you're trustworthy, but it's not for me to to uh, my decision that you are or not trustworthy doesn't change whether or not you're actually trustworthy. Right. No. So on the one hand, it's, it's for subjective. me to just, yeah, right. So it's for me to, um, well, okay. So it's subjective and it's, it's not, sorry, there's a, a bit more to say as well. And it's subjective in that trustworthy, someone's trustworthiness is in the eye of the beholder. But at the same time, there is something to be, it seems that there's something quite solid about trustworthiness. So, um, you know, say that we're both, uh, I don't know, we're, we're, we're both criminals or something, right? And we were counting on each other to, to you know, do some piece of crime or something like that. Um, because we've got the same goal in mind, I might feel that you're trustworthy towards me or, or that you're trustworthy, uh, that I can trust you to sort of, um, you know, look out for the police or something when I'm doing the thing. Um, but uh, that's, that's subjective uh, and context sensitive. But at the same time, I think the real sense in which the rest of the world would want to say, no, I'm sorry, guys, you're not trustworthy. You're, you're, you're criminals. Um, and so there's a sense in which it's context sensitive and, and subjective, but there's also um, you know, trustworthiness uh, on the level of it amounting to integrity. Um, 
there are things which are, if we can say, integrous and which and those which are not. Mm. It's easy to so it's easy for me here to like think almost mathematically about this because you, you in this thought experiment, you're you, you and I are like criminal sidekicks. Mm. and and you're you're allocating some trust to me which is fair enough because i'm like trying to steal stuff that you're going to benefit from too so so that's that's normal and then we've got the rest of the other population who don't view me as trustworthy because i'm mm. stealing stuff um so so like once you once you like do the math overall my trust score is like pretty low although it's very high with you overall mm. it's pretty low so is it so is that is that uh, I'm maybe simplifying it by using maths uh, as an analogy, yeah. but I think that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I think that it's it's. I think that's a helpful tool. It's probably do, it it doesn't capture the the richness perhaps of what's going on, but I think it's really helpful because if I think about my just if we just you know take it out of the thought experiment and make it bring it closer to real life. If if I'm trying to say, gosh, how how trustworthy a person am I really? Um, well, in, if, if I just look at my relationship with, let's say, my wife, um, I might say, gosh, I'm, you know, I think I'm, I'm really trustworthy there. I'm, you know, kind of an open, I'm an open book with her. I, you know, uh, I sort of meet her expectations, whatever you want to say, right? Um, in con contrast to that, if I just go around judging my trustworthiness just based on that one relationship, um, I could be sort of overly confident about my character. But if on the line of what, you, what you're doing, where you're sort of multiplying it and looking at the bigger picture, that's really helpful because then I go, well, hang on, can I really say that I'm a trustworthy person if I'm, you know, sort of really working on my relationship with my wife, but I'm a complete jerk to everyone else? And right. You know, which, well, and also it's your wife to decide to some degree. So right. she, she needs to have some input into the equation here. <laughs> Exactly. Right. So, um, and that's where a lot of, um, well, okay. So this is where transparency, I think comes back in. Um, mm. we have for, for us to work out if I'm actually being trustworthy or actually you're being trustworthy, the most being trustworthy. Um, and if there's a good basis for trust, um, again, driving the wedge between those two things. So trust is, uh, appropriately placed when trustworthiness is there. Um, then we've, we've got to be talking about what our expectations are. Um, so I might think I'm doing a great job, but if I just completely missed the boat on what other people are expecting of me, then, then I'm not. And it doesn't matter, um, you know, on the one hand, how well I think I'm doing if they think we're just not on the same page. So I think this is where transparency is, is, is right to talk about in terms of trustworthiness. And I think this is the, the sentiment where a lot of people um, writing those, those blogs and things I mentioned before are coming from. They're saying, how can the public trust a company who's hiding everything? How, how we need to communicate. We need we need customers, stakeholders, clients to tell to clearly communicate to the companies what they expect of them, and we need the companies to reveal what's really going on. And how can we trust them if they're hiding everything? Um, but I think probably what you came across on on my website, which sort of made you feel like I might be challenging a core belief for you, is that trust uh transparency is is not enough uh as a basis for trust mm. um and i that's that comes from this view that um a lot of times if you look at the language that's being used around transparency and trust they'll say you know to build trust increase transparency um mm. but that's 
that's not true. If we think about transparency as sort of um, lifting the curtain on what's going on, right? Um, if you just raise the curtain, but you find that there's all kinds of corruption, then transparency might be the very thing that makes us not trust yeah, absolutely. That, in that situation. So I think it's when, um, I, actually, so this is something that, that I think is a, a good sort of tool of philosophy um, or a good like trick of philosophy um, to do. Oftentimes what we find when we're sort of doing philosophy on something is that uh, meaning is getting smuggled in to a concept. So um, when we, for, for example, in this instance, when we're talking about transparency, um, we're smuggling in the meaning that to be transparent is not just to raise the curtain, but to also have um, integrity. Um, but in fact, transparency is just being able to see. Well, yeah, um, I'm thinking yeah. the word transparency there, like the actual word might mm. be carrying, it carries some um, visual imagery around something being clean. So somehow the terms mm. feel, mm. feels like it's, it's by definition virtuous, but actually right. you, you can be transparent in order to make people look stupid. Like you can, you can be transparent out, out, of, out of devilry somehow, you know, but the word yeah. sounds clean yeah. and good. Right, exactly. We're, you know, as a, as a company, we're going to report our um, sustainability practices, um, not because we really care about the environment or because we really care about meeting the expectations of our customers, but because we know that's, that's, you know, if you don't do that these days, it's kind of career suicide, you know, so that's, that's, um, it's transparency without the integrity that really is needed to drive trust. And I think um, it strikes me that something, uh, maybe an important point to bring out here is that you know, we're talking about language and it could feel like, again, when we talk about philosophy and work as a thing, it could feel like, well, hang on, why, do, why does all this sort of hair splitting really matter? If, if all of us in a meeting sitting around a table in a company are on the same page, uh, you know, we know that when we use the word transparency, what we really mean is, you know, being able to see and having integrity. So as long as we're on the same page, then isn't that fine? Do we need to sort of work out what it really is? Um, and to that, I would say, yeah, functionally, that's, that's great. But a lot of times um, we do make assumptions and we're busy people and it's easy in those contexts to, um, to just sort of take things for granted. And when everyone's sitting around the table is going, oh yes, of course, we should have a sustainability policy. It's, it's easy just to go, yeah, great, it makes sounds good. Um, but by doing the philosophy around these things and going, oh, what do we really mean? then it might raise raise some really important important well what, one example of transparency is you could have two totally different intentions and and I'll, I'll just give two two simple examples but in a boardroom one person might care about transparency to be good and one person might care about transparency to look good and yeah. those, those are just are not the same conversation at all and yet the word transparency could give those two people the illusion of being on the same page when in yeah. fact they they it's possible, given those two intentions or, or motivations I just gave, that their that their uh, values are actually totally contradictory to one yeah. another. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, exactly. A trust is another great one. So we might talk about, um, you know, talking about a in a meeting, and might say, okay, how do we how do we help? Uh, you know, the, the consultants that came in told us that. Um, this one part of the market doesn't trust us anymore. Um, we really care about them. So, you know, quite authentically, um, how do we address this? We need, we need them to trust us. Um, and we could be sitting around that table and having very different views about what that means and how we achieve it. You know, so on the one hand, we might say, okay, well, if, if we can get 
these people to start using our product, then that means they're trusting us. So all we've got to do is find a way to get them to use the product. On the other side, there might be someone who, you know, is really clued into sort of the, the, the customer experience and they're aware that actually customers might use our product just because they kind of have to. There's not meant much of a choice um, in, that, in that area of the market. And so they can use the product without necessarily trusting us. They just kind of rely on us, but don't really trust us. Yeah, I'm, think, I'm thinking of airlines as a good example. Yeah, yeah, right. So trains. Or, or trains are, are brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, so I live out near Oxford and I get the train into London and, um, you know, just right, why so you have to use the same train company every day, more or less. Right, you want yeah. To or not. And, uh, you know, and I'm actually really happy with the, the service I get. Um, sort of, I know that's a bit of a bizarre thing to say these days, but I'm, I'm really quite happy with it. Um, but I can't say, you know, there's just no choice. Um, I mean, yeah, I could, I could walk or I could drive or something, but that's not feasible. Yeah, I feel like the most trusting thing for them to do would be to voluntarily create competition so that there, so that there, there can be more trust mm. rather yeah. than just like a, right, yeah, rather than you just knowing that. I just, right. I just, yeah. I just yeah. want to jump back on on the transparency thing for a minute because you've not quite dissolved my belief, but you're okay. you're you're on your way to, you're on your way towards it. One is you gave a, a kind of definition or a, an element to the conversation that I not considered before. You seem to be basically saying at one point about trust that, that it was to some degree whether an expectation was being met or not being met. So I can be transparent and, or a company can be transparent, let's say, and we find out stuff about them and it totally meets our expectations of them and therefore we trust. Um, and on the opposite, there can be some transparency it doesn't meet our expectation at all of what we'd expect of their behavior or, or moral values and therefore we lose trust. And I guess I've always been, so I've, I've always been fiercely pro-transparency for a few reasons. So one is, was that, one is that in a group, um, in an organization, there's often silos in different departments uh, that creates friction quite often uh, and I kind of see see two measures. One is that it's just not very effective to to be at, uh, at odds with each other constantly, yeah. and the other is that it's also not very nice to be at odds with each other constantly. Yeah. And that um, so I, I kind of see like a commercial and a human value to both. And for me, what transparency does is first of all, it makes my work available. Uh, to everyone else to be able to benefit from which to me creates a sense of, of one team um, I think it, it does so at speed uh, the other one is that if we communicate openly and transparently I feel like there's less room for politics because I don't have information as a weapon or a bargaining tool anymore so I, my sense is that it often disempowers leaders um, so so I see I see a, a number of benefits. Perhaps the biggest one is that I feel transparency, voluntary transparency, is anti-competitive. If if you were to see a debate in um, maybe in politics, uh, you know when when election debates are televised, for instance, and that one of the candidates would be able to just say like, go to my website forward slash transparency, and there's literally everything you need to know. Uh, it's all it's all just there for you to see financial details everything mm. I feel like you just can't really fight with that guy and so so therefore mm. therefore since there's no fight to be had I feel like the relationship's going to be uh, non-violent almost by by default 
but actually that so so this is this is me arguing for for transparency but then what you've made me think is that very often in organizations i've pushed for it often i'll do it by role modeling something so i tend to make my salary uh, transparent because it's it feels like it really cuts through to the to the nub of me in some way that you you now know something about me that you wouldn't expect to know about me and so I'm volunteering um, some like openness to conversation and rapport and and all those nice things but now I see that when I do that I'm wondering based on some of your sort of analysis of the relationship between trust and transparency whether I'm actually putting myself in a situation where I can't be trusted because if someone else does have stuff to hide, either because they've done something bad or simply because one thing that comes up with transparency in organizations is someone who's a perfectionist might not want everyone to see their work shit purely out of like slight insecurity around their work and being judged, which is like a, you know, which I, I experience constantly. Um, so therefore I might actually be creating a situation where that person doesn't trust me. Uh, in some sense and they're even more likely to not share because now like there's heightened fear around around that do you see what i mean like yeah. i'm wondering if i'm if i'm being self-defeating by mm. being overly transparent i'm actually i'm actually making people fearful of trusting me yeah yeah really interesting so um i mean first of all i really i really appreciate your uh where where all of this is coming from you know from what you're saying so the courage to to do something that is so um on the one hand countercultural um to share what your salary is uh to make that clear um and and for the reasons that you're saying i think that's really admirable so that's that's really positive um i think whether or not it helps trust a couple things come to mind so one comes from psychology and one comes more strictly from philosophy um the psychological one is one that I, I can't speak to as much, but um, from studies I've come across where, you know, they say that if you want to have people sort of move towards you, you know, sort of feel warm towards you and, and, and be responsive, then you should sort of, you should make them feel safe, right? The psych, you should have, have them have psychological safety. And so the, you don't want to do anything that causes them to have fear. So for example, there's studies where, uh, you know, you know on, on packets of cigarettes, those, pictures of uh, sort of diseased lungs and rotting teeth and things um, that are supposed to sort of the idea I guess is that they're supposed to help smokers stop smoking because you look at a pack of cigarettes and go ah I don't want that to happen to me I'm going to stop smoking um, but in fact what they found is that um, it makes people smoke more because if you're a smoker and then you look at that and that makes you feel anxious about what's going on in your lungs or something you just want a cigarette right because because of the anxiety that's interesting right and so i wonder if on the first hand if there's something there about you know if if you share your your salary with me and i feel really anxious about oh is does he th is he gonna think that i should do that i feel you know culturally whatever that makes me feel uncomfortable um then something inside me goes on the defensive and and well, I mean, there's probably now that you're you you having just uh, uh, applauded me for my intentions, uh, you're actually making me realise that subtly I am actually guilty of some form of coercion there. I'm being, I mean, I'm being transparent because I believe in transparency, sure, sure but I'm also being transparent because I believe in you being transparent, uh, right. and so somehow there's coercion 
And maybe there's a difference between transparency being voluntary or coerced. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Because um, you now feel you have to share your salary with me, which you didn't, you weren't into maybe before, and now you feel anxious, right. so you're going to have a right. cigarette. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And if, if I'm a, you know, I should, I should be sort of strong enough in myself to go, you know what, that's, that's John's choice. That doesn't have to be my choice. But just because I'm a human um, who's sort of mm. still on the, the road of being an emotionally evolved person, I, you know, it does make me, I do feel that it's hard to differentiate like that. So, so yeah, I mean, that's one thing to think about. The, the other thing um, that comes to mind that is more from the, the philosophy of, of trust, what I think is really important here is getting into um, how trust is what's called a co-reactive attitude, right? So what, what that means is, um, it sounds kind of complicated, but it's, it's, it's not really, it just means that when people trust us, um, well, first of all, trust is a, is a, it's an attitude that is a reaction to something. So specifically trustworthiness. So if I come across you and I think you're trustworthy, then that it sort of draws the response of trust out of me, right? So it's a, it's a reactive attitude. But that calling it a co-reactive, that co thing on the front there is saying, it's not just a, an attitude that reacts to something else like trustworthiness, it's co-reactive. It's an attitude that responds, that reacts and calls for another response. So mm. if, you're, if I think you're trustworthy and I respond with, tr with trust, when I trust you, I'm also implicitly calling on you to, to respond back to me in a certain way. So I'm calling on you to, um, to behave in a way which supports my trust and sort of is a, is a positive response to that. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like I want you to somehow be aware that I'm trusting you and, and everything that that means and I'm making myself vulnerable to you. And, and so are you going to respect that? Are you going to care well for that? And the reason that I think this matters with uh, the salary thing is because what it means, and it goes back to our conversation about expectations, what it means for, for you to respond well to, to my trust is, is going to be different across, um, across different situations, right? Um, and here, I think we have to make another distinction that, um, you know, that I think is really important. And it's between predictive expectations and normative expectations. So we've been talking about trust uh, being about expectations just generally. But in fact, there's, there's two types of expectations. And a moment ago, you talked about um, a company losing our trust because they, you know, they, they sort of miss our expectations. They don't, they don't uphold them. But I think it can go in a couple of different ways. So for example, if I, um, if, if I, you, you know, I come across you online, I see that you've revealed your salary and that gives me a certain expectation about what I predict you will do, right? Um, it, it gives me an expectation about what I predict you will earn, for example, or what you do earn, something like that. So predictive expectation is an expectation about what's actually going to happen or the way the world is. Um, a normative expectation is an expectation about how things ought to be. So normative expectations really get down to the heart of what I expect at a sort of moral or ethical sort of value-based level. And these two things can come apart. I could have a predictive expectation that um, the CEO of a company um, will you know, do, do a scandalous thing at the same time that I have a normative expectation that that same CEO ought not to do a scandalous thing. Right? Mm. Um, and so I think with the salary example, whether or not it, if we're asking, you know, does, is that positive where trust is concerned? 
then the question is really, well, what does it say to people about how aligned you are with their normative expectations? In other words, how, what does it say to people about how much you're on the same page with them about what's right and good to do? And so mm -hmm. if, they, if they go, oh, John's revealing a salary, I see that as a real sort of integrity-based, transparent move. Um, you know, I believe in that too. And therefore, John doing that really makes me feel like, yeah, he's, he's on the same, on the same page and he's being really courageous. So, you know, I happen to be on the same page with you uh, in a lot of ways. And so that's why I, I probably responded how I did initially and said, wow, congratulations for doing that. Um, to some other people, they might have different values. They might have different normative expectations. And so they might approach it and go, wow, John's, John's doing a really sort of interesting thing here. He's, he's saying how much he earns. And to me, that may, I, I don't know, just at the most extreme side, they might go, that makes me feel a little bit unsafe around John because I'm not sure if we're on the same page. I wouldn't do that. I don't think yeah. he needs to do that. Yeah. And so where else might we be in different spaces? Gosh, is he going to ask me to do something really uncomfortable? You know, and so I don't yeah. um, you know, I, 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 feel no, I totally get that. I yeah. totally get that. I think, and I think, yeah, I think you've just put the, I mean, we're, we're now talking about the specific example, but I think you're actually spot on as to what I think people might be thinking. The reason this is interesting to me is because there is now a new norm being developed amongst proponents of more democratic and distributed organizations that, that typically a pro-transparency, partly out of utility, that it's very difficult to be leaderless and, mm. and uh, not share stuff. Um, it, it just works a lot better when the information is shared. But, um, but it goes to, to extremes. And I, I tend to encourage the extremes simply because it creates a, a polar that we can run towards, like a polar opposite. Um, and, and salaries is often a part of it. Um, but actually, maybe there's just not been enough due consideration for psychological safety in that sense, or at least those organizations are probably based on what you just said, perhaps only going to attract the kind of people who set, have the same normative belief and therefore sure. will suffer from other problems like a lack of diversity because they're only employing the kind of people who don't mind everyone knowing their salary, which is probably yeah. a really small percentage of the world. Right. And, you know, and there's something to be said for that. Um, you know, a couple of things, I think what I'm saying about transparency and, and everything about trust is um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's it, where trust is concerned, it would be wise to stop telling people your salary. It might just mean uh, two things. It might just mean that there's uh, room to sort of qualify and explain why, why you're doing it. Um, and there's another route, another route just to say, Do you know, no, I'm not going to qualify it. I'm not going to apologize. I'm going to keep doing this because this is something I really believe in. And the people that it makes feel not just uncomfortable, but sort of are, are not on the same page, um, they're not sort of my, my tribe, as it were. So, you know, I don't know if you've come across yeah. Seth Godin's tribe's book. Um, where he's I'm actually reading about, it right now. That's weird. Oh, cool. Okay, <laughs> yeah. cool. Um, so, you know, he, he says, has this idea that you don't really have to, like, lead everyone. You know, you just got to find your your tribe which is to say people your, your people that sort of are on the same page because uh you know there's no longer just one main market for uh, i don't know music sales or or one main market for clothing or one main market for for whatever you're selling uh, you just have to find the people that sort of get you and so just i mean talk about 
a sort of a, a plug for transparency or authenticity, um, you know, his view would just be just present what you really believe, um, you know, what you where you're coming from. And you'll attract those people. Yeah. And you'll attract the right the right people. And I think it's slightly tricky for people like yourself and myself in the line of work that we're doing, because we don't just want to attract people that already get it. We want to help people um, get get better. Right. And so um, so maybe, you know, maybe that thinking is a bit less helpful there. Yeah, it feels like some of the mechanics are kind of against us in that, right. in that respect. <laughs> yeah, uh, I want to. Yeah, sorry, good. I, no, I, I want to move on to to another topic, but first, just to complete the circle on transparency, a question I have to you is about the relationship between transparency and privacy. Um, mm -hmm. So I like instinctively, I, I, instinctively is in I I can't fully articulate why I think I think this. But my sense is that transparency and privacy aren't the same thing, as in they're not opposite ends of one spectrum, but they're two different things. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. What, what's your what's your thoughts on that? Like, mm -hmm. the, my sense is that it's about whether it's voluntary or not, but I can't quite uh, think through my my thought. If you know what I mean? I, I think that's really interesting. Can you say talk me through a bit more about that? Because um, so you're saying transparency and privacy, they're they're not opposite sides of the same spectrum there's some different kind of relationship yeah i think so <laughs> so so allow me to think out loud but my the way i've maybe described it before is that transparency is a duty i'm 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 imposing a lot on this but is a duty whereas privacy might be a right so so i cuz i do i really believe in the right to privacy i really i really believe that you know what I don't know. I don't know where I would put the barrier in terms of people who's who have a who have public lives or or in government or or whatever. But uh, but I, I I hate the idea that someone's real personal story um, gets shared against their will or they're invaded by the press in some way. And so I I really believe in maintaining that person's privacy. Yeah, I really believe in transparency. So some people are saying, well, those you can't have both. And my sense is that you have a right to privacy, but uh, you're encouraged, and I would use the word in some case, in some not for everyone, but in some case, duty to be as transparent as you can whilst protecting your privacy. So, yeah. so it feels like transparency is perhaps something to volunteer, and privacy is something to to decide where your line is and to to protect what's behind the line. Yeah, kind of thing. yeah I, I think that's brilliant. Um, it's. And I think it helps explain actually where your thinking on transparency uh, and trustworthiness comes from. Because you're going back, I was saying that um, the, the view that we've been talking about, I think, seems to smuggle in something beyond transparency, namely um, integrity and trustworthiness. That it's not, you know, transparency doesn't just, when someone is transparent, doesn't just denote that they're sort of lifting the curtain and showing you everything, that they're, um, they have some good intentions for doing that as well. Uh, that's why transparency is, is upheld as a value or something. But where that seems to come from, and it would make a lot of sense for that to be the case, is that there's an element of choice involved that, mm. like you're saying with privacy, um, you know, I have a right to privacy and, and to the extent that I um, reduce my privacy by being transparent, that is my choice and um, as soon as transparency, transparency is 
um, enforced on me or, or coerced or something like that, um, it, it loses its value, I think. Um, so if, mm. you know, if uh, the, the thing that seems to be positive, positive for trust, um, where transparency is concerned, is the choice that someone makes to be transparent. You know, right, so it's the, they did it because they wanted to, not because they were forced to do it. Right, yeah, right. Um, and the ability, the ability to do that, the ability to choose, is what uh, philosophers of, of sort of ethicists and, and moral thinkers, um, it's one of the, the, the tests they use to, to determine if someone is a, a, a person or just some other kind of being or something like a machine or, or, or something like that. Right, so, um, The fact that they, they, the phrase that you'll come across in the literature is, um, you know, could the kind of being who could do otherwise, right? So mm. you, you choose to be transparent, but you don't have to, you could do otherwise, you have choice. And the fact that you have choice, um, you know, suggests that, that you are a sort of member of the moral community. Like right, yeah, it's slightly more heroic because you, yeah. you do it voluntarily. Yeah, and it's that same, that same element of agency or human choice that gives um, trust its value. You mm. know, yeah. if, if I, it's, it's that, you know, remember before I said, if someone's using our product, but they're just doing it because they don't have much choice. They're just doing it because there's, you know, it's the only, I don't know, kind of milk they can get at their shop or the only train they can get on. Mm. Then it's not just that they're, trust, they're trusting us and the, the sort of social value of, of that interaction really goes down. Um, mm. But if they're choosing, then that's interesting. So I think with privacy, I, I think you're, uh, I mean, I'd have to go away and think about it more, but I think you're on the money. Um, it seems to me that privacy is a, a, a given. And then when we choose to be transparent about it, um, that's what makes transparency relative. Right, so you're starting from that end that privacies are given and then you're moving forward, wa walking into transparency rather than, and I tend to, to sometimes I think I do for, I do coerce people the other, I'm realizing literally now, I feel like this is an AA session, I'm John and I coerce <laughs> people into transparency, but you're making me think something, uh, a way to reframe it and actually like with, we, we talked earlier, you said that uh, how, how belief can change and then you can immediately act with no no extra time needed one thing that i can start talking about and sharing with the organizations i work with is voluntary transparency creating space for voluntary transparency whereas what i'm what i'm doing uh and i think i think i've like subconsciously known this but it hadn't hadn't quite reached my conscious mind yet is that i uh i'm coercing people into transparency and that's that's like not going to build much trust Forcing, mm -hmm. forcing someone to get naked in front of anyone isn't, isn't really a most fun thing yeah. to do. Right, right, right. So, and this is, this is why I don't do trust falls <laughs> in any of the workshops that I do. So, you know, trust fall, the thing where you get someone up on a stage or on a chair or something, and then everyone stands behind them and you say, okay, fall back and we'll, we'll you know, trust us to catch you. Um, I, once, I once went to a, an event where the speaker um, said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you trust, right? And, and he got a volunteer up on the stage and said, stand up on this chair and I'm going to stand behind you and, and fall into my arms. And, and the person did it and everyone clapped for them. And then he said, you know, um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you've just witnessed trust. And I just thought, no, not necessarily. Like you might have just, oh, maybe that person went up on the stage and they just weighed up, you know, okay, I might fall on, on, on the ground um, and that would be physically painful. But if I sort of sheepishly climb back down off the chair and say, I don't want to do it, that's going to be 
more wounding in some other way in front of all yeah, these Yeah, you people. could argue that they were bullied, basically. Right, right. And so, you know, so I don't, the trust falls don't really show trust unless you're talking about something else. And so, um, so I think, yeah, to, to bring it full circle, I'm, I'm not saying that transparency is, is bad where trust is concerned. I'm just saying that there's more to trustworthiness than transparency. And so all these um, proponents of transparency for the sake of trust, um, we need to stop saying to build trust, just be transparent. We need to be a bit more refined than that and say to build trust, um, be trustworthy and then reveal that, then, you know, do transparency. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, and also one other thing, um, I don't know if it, if it's helpful at all, but going back to uh, your AA example, you know, that your name is John and you, you course people to be transparent. I think that there's, um, I think there's, there's, there's a difference, right? Between coercing people and, um, and helping them. Right. So I think that, uh, I mean, I doubt that you're, you're in your sessions sort of, um, holding a gun to someone's head and making them do this. <laughs> I think it's, it's probably more, you know, very, <clears throat> you know, no, knowing you and, UK, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, knowing, knowing you, um, and, uh, you know, how you would be. And I think it's, I'm sure it's, it's, you're, you're making a safe place to begin with and you're sort of, um, helping them, uh, see the value of doing that. And so, yeah, I think there's a difference, you know, otherwise all learning, all teachers, anyone who's like a mentor or a coach or anyone that calls us out to do something differently, uh, that sort of, yeah, of course. You know, would be coercive. Um, yeah. And I don't think that communicates. No, that's, that's brilliant. Thanks. I feel like I've, um, <laughs> I've got my money's worth here. This is brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. I don't I just want to say, I don't want to keep making life too easy on you. I feel like you wanted me to challenge you and I keep. No, absolutely. <laughs> no, but no, yeah. this is, this is really useful. Thanks so much. It's yeah. no, and it's great. Like I, I think I, I said beforehand, I want to have the kind of conversations on this podcast and in general, where we can disagree towards common, but with the intent of building towards common goals. Um, and too often, too often there's just this idea that, I mean, I don't know, you and I disagree and so I don't listen or you don't listen or vice versa, Mm -hmm. or, or I'm just looking for why you're wrong in the, you know, I'm listening to you with the ear of someone who's trying to find what's wrong in what you're saying rather than what's right or potentially interesting or what do I disagree with that maybe I should just wear that that hat for a while and just see how it feels um and it's it's definitely something to practice I think my my wife would uh would agree that I should practice it far more so Mm -hmm. so I'm I'm practicing yeah Yeah. good call (laughs) so there's a there's a topic I want us to discuss that I brought up um before in in some of the prep that we did um, sure. And it's it's one of the big philosophical ones that uh, you you can help me with, and that's around reality um, mm-hmm. or reality and truth. So um, to get, I'll give I'll give just some basic background as to why I'm interested, and then maybe you can you can just jump in with your perspective on this. My sense is that so I so back, background for me as a person as well is that I meditate a lot. I specifically practice a form of meditation called vipassana, where you're the, the way it is described is that you're, you're simply being asked to uh, see reality as it is, as opposed to as you might want it to be or as you see it, um, but to see reality as it is. 
Um, and so that it's one of those practices that where you do very little, I, I'd almost say the whole point is to do nothing. <laughs> You're, you might just observe your breath or you might just notice what you notice, which could be your thoughts, sounds, anything. But you're not in my point is that you're not imposing a mantra or, or anything like that. You're just you're basically watching your mind and and noticing what it's like to be you. Um, and so having practiced that for some time, I end up now with so many situations where I'm seeing I'm seeing that there's a story between me and reality, or there's a concept between me and reality. Um, and in the past that's had detrimental effects on my mental health. So, so to, to realize that you're telling yourself angry stories or sad stories or vengeful stories is, um, is obviously not gonna, not gonna lead to much joy. So, so being able to see the reality that this is simply a story in my mind, this is, this isn't reality. Um, the thought exists, but the, the thought isn't any more real than reading Harry Potter is real. Um, I find, uh, so I found that really useful from a mental health uh, perspective. And then the second place I found it really useful is in my writing and in my work that I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm a long way from being there, but I'm finding myself increasingly able to interrogate issues more sharply because I'm noticing some of my biases that might be away, or you earlier talked about smuggling meaning or assumptions into into terms or, or concepts. And I guess I'm noticing them far more. And so for just to circle round, I have this sense that asking myself the question, what is real is really valuable and could be a really valuable philosophical tool in business. Mm. And yet businesses culturally and, and in a lot of ways are filled with stories and assumptions that seem to not unpack reality in that way. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm coming at it uh, from. So I, I guess I'm curious as to your perspective, perhaps even building up on on the term reality and what it means, and then also how do you how do you use it as a philosophical tool yeah. in life and in and in work? Yeah, yeah. Wow, really huge. Um, Sorry, maybe that's too big for we. And we can do a part two of this if 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 we if we're finding it too fun to stop. We can just uh, arrange a part two with Dr. Brennan Jacobi. Cool. Okay. No, that's great. Um. So I think that I mean first the right or off the bat, I should say there are there are philosophers that are um, epistemologists who spend their whole lives focusing on on this question, and um and that's not a main focus for me. So if you know if there's someone listening who has their ear to the ground of the the literature i'll probably um uh, not do that justice but i think where it comes in more practically um is understanding reality as kind of simply put as something that holds up right so something which uh when you when you poke it continues to to be there and and that's what what scientists are after when you know the scientific method operates on that they're trying to say uh you know last time we we uh we brought water to this temperature it boiled um this time when we bring it to that point it, it boils exactly the same point so um there must be something about that temperature and what we understand as boiling that is real right um or true we kind of use those words interchangeably with um so that that is reality at the of the physical world and that's what science tends to focus on. Um, for philosophers, 
we're doing the same thing, but we're not um, just looking at the physical world. Well, often we will deal with the physical world, but we'll we'll deal. And and I guess here I'm not talking about you know an alternative of, of a spiritual world, but I'm talking about um, the that which is cons- the concepts, how we un- what, what is um, what is real, and perhaps not just physical. So. Um, for example, if we talk about uh, 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 what is real, it's it's generally um, generalization. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's not a great sentence, but it, we're we're generalizing to something, and then we look for opportunities where that thing is not true. So remember, a while ago we were talking about um, uh, we were talking about that thought experiment, right? Of of us being criminals and stuff and trust. Um, a thought experiment is an experiment which is not done in a lab, it's just done in our minds like that. We just sort of make up a story. And sometimes people say, well, how does that hold up? And the reason it holds up is because of how philosophers think about reality and what they do with their terms. So the reason it's a useful tool for us to to uncover what's actually real is because philosophers begin not with as such a precise hypothesis as the scientist might, um, you know, namely, at what temperature will water boil? I think it will boil at you know this temperature. Or whatever. Um, but instead, we say we start with a generalization, which is not to say something um, uh, thin or um, meaninglessly broad, but something which has to be true not just in life as we know it, but in all possible realities. So sometimes you'll hear philosophers talk about possible worlds, and um, what they mean is not just the world that we live in, but in the realm of possibility, you know, in, in the all of sort of mathematical opportunities, all kinds of plausibility, could something be the case? And if they start really broadly like that, then um, with a hypothesis like, uh, you know, is, is, tr- is, is transparency the same thing as trustworthiness? Um, because they're asking such a big general kind of question like that, then all they have to do to disprove their hypothesis is find one potential instance, um, you know, one situation that they could make up in their heads in a thought experiment where everyone would say, yeah, that seems right to me and, that situ- and the, the hypothesis is not true in that situation. Um, and by doing that, they've found, okay, our, our terms are too broad. So what's, what's really real isn't the thing that we thought of. It's that, that was too general. We need to refine it. And so, um, so taking a bit of a, a long route through the tall grass to get there, but what we're talking about in terms of reality and how we understand it practically and in the work that I do with, with businesses is to say, is it, is it something that holds up when we keep poking it, when we keep asking questions, when we say, well, is, this, is our understanding of this thing or is the way that we're handling this in one meeting, would that still be right in another meeting? Um, and if we say no, then okay, well, there's the the general our general view on this thing isn't isn't right. And so reality is uh, not necessarily just what um, I'll, I'll be bold and say not necessarily just what science uh, tells us is there, but it's um, it's the totality of what could potentially be there and continues to hold up as we keep interrogating it. Does that make sense? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, it makes sense. I, I guess I don't use the word, and this could just be because you, you're a philosopher and have a different profession to me. 
I don't use the word reality in that way, but that's interesting okay. in of itself because you're now like, uh, I now realize why this is something that's spoken about in the way that it's spoken about so much. So when I talk about reality, I'm, I'm basically saying, I'm basically saying there's like objective physical events in the world. Mm. Um, uh, and those, you know, like gravity, gravity is like gravity is a thing. Um, mm. that's, that's, that's true. And then lights is a thing and sound waves are things. And then there's me. And so I'm, I'm now like quite a hefty filter for reality. Mm. And there are some things that are still objectively true. Like, um, like I feel things. And so I feel light, I feel sound, I feel, not everyone does, but, but I do at least. Um, so th th those are objective things. And then there's just at some point when we build up from layer to layer, there's just this moment where my mind infiltrates the situation and um, starts seeing things that I already agree with as true and things that I already disagree with as untrue, simply by virtue of having biases. Um, and, and this is a point where I've now gone from what I like objective reality to my subjective reality. So that, that's how I use the, the term reality. My, my sense though, I think what I'm learning from what you're saying is that I think what you're saying is that you use the word reality as a tool to help people, um, not start from that, like physical, slightly uh, like reductionary materialistic view in the world, but rather to start from the sky down, looking broadly um, and divergently at all the possible situations, because that's a more creative place to look from. And because of that, we see more of the different eventualities and possibilities, and therefore can have richer discussions, we can adopt perspectives that aren't our own. Um, and that's an amazing tool to think through situations. And then by giving it that extra test at the end, that does this hold up question, you're able to take it from the, the loftiness of those like divergent ideas that appear into the, the practicalities of having eventually to make a decision with all these thoughts, which is like, if it holds up, then decision A, if it doesn't hold up, then we keep exploring a bit longer. So, okay. so I think, is that right? That you're using it in that way, not in the way that I first explained I use yeah. the word reality? Yeah, I mean, so sometimes I'll get into conversations with clients where, you know, it'll matter, the, the actual sort of nature of reality and the, the deep kind of stuff that, that you're bringing up now will matter. And we'll, we'll go there and we'll, and we'll talk about that in a very personal kind of way. Um, but usually what really, what is important for, my clients is to make sure that everything they're doing with their strategy with their products with the way that they give feedback to people or whatever it might be um that that is lining up with with reality and what i mean there is are they are they saying something that is true in the sense that it's factually true um but not only that that it's um adhering to those those normative expectations we were saying before are they that they're not hiding in a sense that they're not um saying something uh, uh they're not deviating from what's what's right because they're afraid um that they are um putting something out there to use a, a vague statement putting something out there which is um constructive and good and helping the situation you know so um 
you know, take an example of having a difficult conversation, you know, before you're talking about the, the just really normal human experience of hearing someone say something that is, uh, you know, sort of grates on your values or is a different thing and, and finding it hard to not shut down at some level, finding it hard not to critique them or sort of get angry or something. Um, and that's really normal, but then I would say to help the person in the situation uh, be more true or, or uh, be more in line with reality. It's not just are the words coming out of, out of your mouth factually accurate, but are you um, operating out of a, a position in your mind, in, your, in yourself, which is open to other people, which is um, positive, um, which is, um, and the trueness there is now aligning with what is, what is uh, morally true, what is, what is good uh, on a value-based level which is not just protective and fearful. Mm, my mind just like splintered into three, three <laughs> different questions I have. <laughs> can, you can you describe, I use, uh, I, I think I do so wrongly, but perhaps out of intellectual laziness, I use the words true and real as synonyms. My sense, my sense is that most people don't or like actually trained philosophers don't. Can you, can you define the, the two terms or the, the distinction between them? Yeah, that is a really hard question for me as well. Um, so what I'll say is truth. Um, so understanding, knowledge has a, has a relationship to truth that it might not have to, real, to reality. So if we talk about um, something which, uh, I don't know, a belief that I have, let's say, right? So um, I, I believe that the, the sun is going to rise tomorrow again or something like that. Um, that's a belief that I hold. And... It's a true belief. Um, it's it's factually accurate. It's aligned to something that is that is that is right, and so um, we can therefore call that belief knowledge. Uh, so when you know something, you don't just have it in your head, but it's also aligned with something that's subjectively true outside uh, of your own head, and that makes it makes it knowledge. Yes, whether whether you are alive or not, that that would happen. Yeah, but you could also say, um, I I have a belief that uh that the sun's not going to rise tomorrow i have a belief that there are you know unicorns or something um and you could say that's that's not true but it is real in a different sense you know i i really do have that belief you know, I'm, i'll be honest with you i don't have the belief but let's say that i really did i'd say <laughs> no no john I, I really do i really do believe that um uh and you say but it's but it's not it's not true and i would say Yes, but it's real, and and the distinctive. <laughs> it's real. You often hear people say it's real to me. Right, exactly, and I think that's that's what they mean. Um, is mm. well, no, but but I and the I, I'm I I think this way. I have this belief, and the reason that we get up in arms in that is because if you've got someone who is really focused on the details and is saying, "No, Brennan, there are no unicorns," and I and and I get upset at that. That's because not because I think how could you not believe in unicorns? It's because I feel like you're not listening to me. Yeah. Okay. I feel like you're not, I'm not feeling heard, you know, to use a phrase. Oh my God. I feel like you could, we could slip into some relationship uh, counseling here. This is, this is, <laughs> I mean, I've had this conversation with Gav so many times and yeah. I, I'm, I'm totally seeing, <laughs> I'm totally seeing my fault in it. She's like, you're not hearing me. And I'm like, but the thing you're saying is just not true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah so real to her right 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 and 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 so i don't know if it's real to her does that mean that it's also true to her 
maybe I'm not sure. You'd have to you'd have to um, I'd have to go back to the epistemology literature. But um, but I think a, a helpful distinction, you know, is to say truth is about factual accuracy. Um, reality is is open to things like beliefs which are not actually aligned with. But, but what's interesting about this, I think, is in terms of like at work and and at home and many other places in the relationships that we have. Um, so let's say you believe that uh, you believe in unicorns and that the sun won't rise tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm like trying to to reconcile this in my mind as I speak, but I'm thinking that your belief is true. Apart from anything else, neurologically, your belief is true. It arose from from some sort of like um, um, like mixture of neurons and and like neural networks speaking to one another. And so the belief is the belief the belief exists in your mind. And then, but as for the content of the belief, as for the idea that the, the sun doesn't rise, um, that's, that's kind of a separate conversation. It's to be discussed and validated and thought through. Um, I guess I can't, I can't argue with the fact that your belief exists. Um, like I, I think it's, it's worth me taking it on your account that if you say that belief exists, then it exists. And then, mm. So, so I'm, I'm guessing what I'm, I'm trying to say is in that situation, the best thing for me to do is to truly listen to the fact that this belief is real for you right now and that you believe it and that this is your experience and I should, I should hear you with kindness and compassion. And that is separate from me. I don't have to agree with you. We can have a discussion about whether the unicorn really does exist or not. Um, and I should be able... You know, at my best here, this is like, uh, this is John 2.0. I should be able to have that conversation, disagreeing about the unicorns and, and looking for us to, to, find, to find some, to, to end up closer together than we were before on that topic, whilst right. totally listening to the fact that this belief is real for you right now. Yes, right. So that's hard. Um, I, I wasn't, yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't going to give a plug because, um, we hadn't really talked about that before and, you know, but, give a um, plug, give a plug. but okay. So, so, um, I'm actually doing, uh, a, so philosophy work is, is doing a partnership with, um, second home, the, the co-working space in London. And, um, and on March 5th, we're doing this supper club, which is, uh, called, um, sex, religion, and Brexit, um, how to have awkward conversations that are, are meaningful. And so, and, and at the core of it is this exact thing you're talking about. So what we're going to do on the day is um, get a bunch of people together, sit around a table, have some delicious food. But then as we're eating, um, we're going to have, we're going to talk about things that we don't normally talk about in society. We find difficult to talk about, and we certainly don't talk very well about at work. Uh, politics, religion, and sex being the things you're not supposed to discuss at the dinner table. Right, right. But then before we do that, I'm not just going to sort of, throw the cat amongst the pigeons before we go into each conversation point i'm going to um, give people a few different tools so we'll talk about how we listen philosophically to your point just now and, and they'll say you know give people some some tips on how to when you sort of feel your blood boiling or whatever or something or you just feel really cringy and uncomfortable to um to listen out for the assumptions that someone else is making to get curious about what they're actually saying um, so that instead of it becoming about um, sort of us and them and disagreements, it becomes about what are they really saying and how can I, how can I pursue the content of what they're saying and really listen out for that rather than it become a, a conflict. And, mm. and so we'll sort of, before going into, you know, talking about each thing, we'll, 
we'll press pause and, and we'll sort of talk about some tools and then we'll, we'll go into a conversation about Brexit, for example, and see, and use it as a bit of a, a test experiment, a bit of a lab to go, okay, so let's have a, a really contentious conversation about gender or something. Um, but let's mm. do it so that we can try out using this new way of listening. And, and so I think it's, you're, you're right on the money to say that there's, um, you know, it's really hard to do that because, uh, our beliefs and our values and everything are, are so much a part of us, but, um, to have, you know, it, it should be possible to have meaningful, constructive conversations rather than just talking about the weather. Um, yeah. I mean, so, so, so first, first of all, uh, send, send me the, the link and stuff to that and I'll send it out to my, on my newsletter and, and all that stuff. Cause that sounds cool. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah, that's, 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 it's really important that we learn to do that. And I'm like saying, saying we rather than people, because I, I I'm like a long way from being good at it. Um, and part, part of the, I mean, like, yeah, I'm sure there's many tools like being able to, for instance, for me to, to just spend five minutes adopting your point of view saying like, mm. okay, so you believe this, you believe that you believe this. And I'm, I'm just like trying to like feel what it feels like to believe those things. Um, and, and then I come out the other end and I might still like totally disagree and that's okay. At least I understand you better. Or, or perhaps like yeah. we're, we're closer to one another. That feels like a really, I guess this is where, there's, I think often there's this kind of sense that, and, and you must feel it a lot with the word philosophy, that our intellectual lives are, are the side of ourselves that is reasonable, is very different from the, the fluffier emotional side of us. And yet, I guess I more and more, and this is what I was saying about meditation earlier, I more and more see how, like down to the chemicals in my body, are affecting my ability to reason I equally can reason back into my emotions and that those two yeah. things don't need to be separate sides of me there's a moment where they reconcile and suddenly philosophy becomes like a, a way of living and working and, and not just reasoning but also becoming a better person and relating better to others yeah yeah no I completely agree I think it's a it's a mistake that we we drive too big a wedge or a wedge at all between the um our thoughts and our feelings between our, our, our mind and our body. And, and we, not only that, but we, we tend to elevate certain ones, you know? So as you say, we tend to sort of say, Oh, the, 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 the mind is that is rational, the bit. And there's, then there's these sort of tricky emotions um, or the body is what's real and the mind is what's not real. And, and it's, I think it's much more in integrated. Um, I mean, let alone that if you, so if you sort of cut me open, it's, it's hard to point to where, um, where all those different bits are, it's all, it's all, it's all in, interconnected. Um, well, yeah, to where you are at all. Right. For that matter. Right. Yeah. right. Um, and, but that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as, as me. Um, you know, I think the, the result, uh, in the scientific revolution, um, sort of, uh, pre precursor to the enlightenment era with, um, you, you had people saying, okay, well, if we cut someone open, we don't see a soul. We don't see a mind. We see a brain. And so that's all there is. Um, I've been reading a, a book recently by Mary Midgley, who's an English philosopher. Um, it's actually her last book that she published uh, just before she passed away. And it's called What is Philosophy For? And, um, you know, there's, there's obvious sort of, you know, value for me reading it. But I think 
um, in there, she's she she makes the point that we've overemphasized the the scientific um, perspective of saying, oh look, there's only physical stuff, so that's all. When we look at the body, there's only physical stuff, so that's all that there can be. She's saying no, just because we only see that doesn't mean that that's all that there could possibly be. Mm, mm. Um, and it's um, you know it's 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 um, it's interconnected. Yes, when if you put me in a brain scan um, and you say okay, Brennan, we're going to, we're going to pinch your toe. Um, and I say, ouch, that hurts. And then you look on the brain scan, you, you see certain C fibers firing in my brain. You go, no, sorry, Brennan, you, you don't, there's no such thing as pain. It's just C fibers firing because that's what, that's what the physical tells us. Um, I mean, practically that's not helpful to me because I would say, okay, well you can call it what you like. I still, I still experience it as pain. Um, and to your point, the way that I, use my thoughts and what goes on in my mind actually has an effect on the body. So we know the causal relationship, or at least the correlation goes both ways, right? So um, if I'm, if my, my body can affect my thinking and my thinking can affect my body, the way that I, if I haven't eaten breakfast today or I'm hydrated, um, it's harder for me to think well. Uh, I know that. At the same time, if I uh, clear out my thinking and I sort of go, uh, hang on, let me press pause and see what's, what's really going on in myself. That can make um, my anxiety about something reduce uh, and have an actual impact on my body. You know, my, my, my pulse uh, chills out. My, mm. um, I actually have a different impact on, you know, my breathing slows. So it goes both ways. Um, and I think, yeah, we, we do ourselves a disservice uh, unnecessarily, I think, to drive too big a wedge between those things. Yeah, and I mean, perhaps on the scientific and philosophy versus philosopher almost kind of paradigm I feel you created there that it, I feel like that conversation itself sometimes goes wrong where like the some people are just talking about what's actually real, like physically, and then others, others are, you know, talking about, I don't know, crazy stuff, basically. Uh, I'm just, I'm just like stereotyping, obviously, but actually what's really happening is that one has put a, a bar on what real is. So, so over this line, you qualify as real. And other than that, it's open to, it's open to, for discussion. And one, it feels like one camp is putting the onus on, has it crossed the bar or not? And the other camp is putting the onus on, well, what is possible? Like, let's consider this. And I think that goes back to what you were saying before, where you're, you're more or less using your mind as a simulation machine to be able to explore uh, questions and possibilities that perhaps you don't have the tools in front of you right now and you can't rigorously test yet. And so, so, so we actually just need both. One is, one is highly divergent and one is perhaps more convergent, but they're just, they're just modes of operation or thinking that, that should be used uh, right with one another yeah no i agree and i think you know at, at this point it, it's it's probably good to say um you know someone could be listening to this and going you know how, so let's go back to philosophy at work how is what we're talking about now about mm. reality truth um whether or not there's a mind or a body you know that's the kind of stuff that makes people think you know kind of interesting thanks very much but i've got stuff to get on with um and yeah i would say no actually what we're talking about is our, our human need for closure, our human need to, to make sense 
of the world. And so, like you're saying, you know, we we drive a wedge between science and philosophy. We try to say, nope, sorry, there's only physical stuff because that, you know, is not easy, but that feels tidier. And to some extent, and that makes feel like we live in a boundary kind of space and it makes sense and frees up bandwidth for us to get on and, you know, uh, do our business. Yeah, I have control um, and safety there. Yeah, and, and that's, that's a really normal, natural thing. And so, uh, you know, in, maybe it's to do with Brexit. I don't know, maybe it's something else, but um, I've had a lot of clients lately saying, could you come in and do a, a workshop with us about how to navigate ambiguity and deal with uncertainty? And what we're doing there is, is just basically dealing with this very thing. You know, you can get really um, into the tall grass and talk about what's reality and truth and minds and brains and stuff. Um, or you can say, well, okay, I've, in the day-to-day, um, change in our organization is hard and uncertainty is tricky because we know that we're beings that like to have closure and make sense of stuff. And so um, what philosophy helps you do is get better with ambiguity because we're used to asking these kinds of big questions and it makes us come to places going, oh gosh, I'm not really sure actually. Um, but okay, maybe I have to be okay with that. And so then um, when we go into saying, okay, well, our company's merging with another one or Brexit's around the corner, then um, we're sort of already warmed up a bit to approach that better. Um, mm. So I think, you know, just trying to sort of connect the dots a bit more between, um, I think the really important conversation we're having about what's real and true and, and science and things um, with the day-to-day, you know, what does that mean for businesses? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, and like it's worth saying parts of businesses are, you know, you have like data scientists in a in a business where the onus might be on one of the one of the ends of the spectrum that we discussed uh before. And so so those conversations happen, they're just on on other topics or perhaps not on on the meaning of life. Yeah. So I'm 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 looking at some of my my prep notes. I've got plenty more I could discuss, but just to make sure we are linking philosophy and work. Um, is yeah. there is there something that you want to bring up or, or should I mm. yeah i want i want to make sure we're we're talking about what's what's interesting you not just me <laughs> yeah no that's nice um i mean i think something that uh could be that i've been focusing a lot on lately is uh questions and um how we use how we use questions what counts as a good question um you know it might make sense we might assume that it makes sense for a, a philosopher to go there but that's something that that is kind of interesting as well um and i remember you, you mentioned before so that might be something to explore as well but otherwise really happy just to go wherever you like no no well let's let's go there i'm also conscious of of your time so let's let's go into two questions so my understanding is that you you more or less use the subject of questions and then the the practice of asking them as as a tool inside organizations T- take us a little bit through that for what purpose do you do that in what way do you do that i can see there's multiple benefits to being better at it so the purpose for the questioning work that i do with companies is um twofold really it's on the one hand uh it quite often there's there's people who are saying i'm in a service role i've got a client who uh comes to me when they need uh, a trusted advisor for example so it might be my client might be a lawyer or an accountant or something like that and to the extent that their client is able to articulate 
really this a specific need, then the lawyer, the accountant are brilliant. They can go, right, I know, you know, you want to acquire this property or you, you file the taxes, whatever it might be. Um, brilliant. I, I'm an expert at doing that. Um, say no more. But there's also a space in particularly those types of industries where service is being given and there's a need for the, um, the lawyer or the accountant, whoever it might be, to draw out what the client really needs. So the client might come to them and go, uh, no, it's not that I have a specific um, property I want to acquire. I just sort of want to make sure we're the business, you know, everything I'm doing is above board. Um, I want to, you know, or, or, you know, maybe their client is uh, an expert in another field, but who isn't really brilliant at articulating exactly what they need. So there's a real need for people that are in the service kind of industry spaces to be able to ask the questions that draw out people. So, uh, so I do work um, in a session called inquiry-based service, where we're talking about what are the questions, how do we do that? How do we listen to, to what's being said? And then how do we ask the question that's going to be perfect in that moment to help draw people out? But the other thing is um, I do just sort of a more general training in asking good questions uh, for companies because we've all been to meetings where people ask questions that aren't really questions. <laughs> they're, no. they're sort of... Um, you know, with the best possible intentions, they're opportunities to sort of assert your your ego. <laughs> <laughs> I have it in Q and A's a lot. If I give a talk, and at the end there's there's an audience and there's a Q and A, and uh, I, I was I think a little bit harsh possibly recently where I had that situation where I, I don't know if he was slightly nervous because he had the mic, um, but he started asking what was supposed to be a question and then spoke and basically reeled off his opinions. And at the end, I'm like, what do I do? Do I ask him what his actual question is or do mm. I just thank him for his opinions? Because uh, so far there's nothing for me to join in on here, yeah. you know? Yes. Yeah, that, that is really tricky. Um, right. So what do, you, what do you do with that? Um, what did you do with that? I'm curious to know what was a good response. I, uh, I, uh, I asked him what he would prefer. I said, do you, yeah, uh, do you, do you have a question? In which case I can answer. If not, like, you know, thanks. Yeah, cool. <laughs> thanks, okay. thanks, thanks for the opinion. I've, I've listened to, to you. Yeah. yeah, nice. That sounds right. So in, in the, because, of, because of that reality, because um, questions, not all questions are created equal, um, I, I do training with groups that are saying, what makes for a good question? How do we um, do the work internally to, to make sure that we're, we're asking questions which are really adding a lot of value to the meeting or whatever it might be. And you know, that's a skill that we can use not just in meetings, but with ourselves as well to process our own thinking and to, um, to critically reflect and that, that sort of stuff. So, so it's for those purposes, um, my, my, uh, my aim, my sort of mission, I think with philosophy at work would be to have, um, you know, one person in every meeting, one person in every team, one person in every department, every company um, that is uh, carrying with them the tools that philosophy gives you. And wow. so, you know, I'd love everyone to have that, but I think um, if there's one person in every meeting that can do that in a really positive way. So what I'm, what I'm not saying is, you know, equipping, someone to be like that, that annoying person in the meeting that just push back, pushes back on everything and you can't please and has got a question for everything. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, you know, it's a real art to be able to ask a good question that, that touches on what needs to be said 
but does so in a way that doesn't offend everyone else in the room and doesn't make people just roll their eyes and go, oh, here we go again, this guy's gonna you know, um, ask a question. And so that's a real skill. And that's, that's I think, something that, um, that is a blend of, you know, the, of what philosophy gives you in the ability to ask the question, but also have the self-awareness uh, that you get mm. uh, you can from studying philosophy. Um, doing philosophy to to approach that so um yeah so i mean that's the long game well i think that's a really awesome mission um that idea of, of someone in each team having those tools i have a similar mission with having someone someone and then ideally most people in each team uh understanding basic facilitation to help the group to decide together better oh, cool. and one of the key tools for that is asking better questions um so that that makes a lot of sense. A, qu a question that popped up for me <laughs> is yeah. what type of questions are you, is on your, is in your, are in your toolbox? Because I see that sometimes it might be good to ask a question, for instance, to do some like, um, some rigor, some like intellectual work into the, the idea that's being proposed. I think you mentioned that a bit earlier when you're asking if something holds up. And then there are other situations where, you might be helping someone to clarify what they're saying in the first place because we don't quite understand. There's others where uh, I feel that there's this one scenario where uh, perhaps someone is speaking and you just have this intuition that there's an intention or a motivation behind what they're, they're not saying what they're trying to say, basically. And you can just cut to what their true motivation is yeah. for what just came out of their mouth. But anyway, so what are the different like categories of questions that you're you're using there? Yeah, really good, um, really interesting question. So where I'm coming in is even at a, 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 I'd say even more foundational level. So whether or not we're asking a clarification question or a sort of question of rigor, um, as you put it, or a different type of question in terms of content and purpose of the question. Um, what I'm working with people on to begin with is to say, we need to ask questions which are honest, uh, bold, non-judgmental and vital. And what I mean by that is questions that are honest or just those questions that um, we're really curious about. So not questions that I already know the answer to, but I'm just asking it for your benefit. You know, uh, I mean, I think right. that has a place, uh, right? So within coaching, mentoring kind of relationships, there's a place for that. Um, but if we're, doing strategy, if we're meeting with colleagues, if we're meeting with peers, um, you know, the first thing to do is to check ourselves and go, hang on, is this, a, is this an authentic honest question? And then um, to have it be a bold question, which is one which, um, you know, I might actually, I'm really curious about this and I, uh, it, it might not be received well, but I think it's, um, it's what needs to be asked. And so I'm going to ask something that, that I think is going to actually uh, move us forward and that gets us onto what I mean by it being vital as well it's what I'll call like a, a load-bearing question a question that actually matters that the answer to which um, could send us in two different directions you know that it's something that needs to be asked um, because I could ask an honest bold and you know otherwise non-judgmental question one which is you know those are, those are all sort of like uh, emotional elements they're all things around the relationships is it what are my intentions is it courageous is it, um, Am I judging the other person? But I could do all of that, be a nice guy to work with, but ask a question doesn't really matter. So it's really important that we include in there that it's a vital question that, um, that we need to use meeting time for.
And I think in, in working with groups on those four things and then working with them on the sort of deeper things that, that stop us from doing that, that's where the real work comes in. Um, that helps because then it's up to them to you know, work out a lot of times, well, what's, what's the question that I need to ask? But if we're right off the bat saying, well, is this really honest? That's just going to push a whole bunch of questions we could have asked to one side, you know, um, and get us wow. to, and help us get down to what's really needed. And what, what are the reactions or impacts of you doing those kind of sessions? Because I, I can imagine it can be pretty like re revealing or powerful. Yeah, 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 it, it, it is, um, to be honest. It, it, what, we'll, what we do is some exercises then where we get people having these conversations in a, in a small group kind of setting or in a one-to-one -one type of exercise. And you, uh, I mean, I think there's an understanding that there's, there are different types of honest questions, right? So, um, and different degrees of boldness and, um, and layered onto all of this is, is appropriateness, right? So we're asking questions which are honest and, and bold, but which are appropriate to, to work and things. Um, and so there's a conversation usually to be had there about well, what, what counts there, but I mean, a lot of, you know, people sort of have a sense of that. Um, and really people are maybe too, too cautious. Um, and so I'm working with them to, to draw, what do you, you know, what's, what's stopping you from asking what you really want to say? And as often we get into the things you might expect around, well, you know, political concerns in the organization or what are, you know, my own sort of uh, insecurity or, or something. But I think after, you know, by the point we get into that, we've, we've created enough sort of safety in the room where we can have those conversations. And we've boundaried that conversation by saying, we're here to talk about this thing. And um, it's, not a, it's not a sort of group therapy, se group therapy session. It's, it's to help us ask our best questions so that we can do more effective work. And so mm. it gets real, but it's for a purpose. And, um, and it, yeah, it's, 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 it's all right. It's not too deep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no, but it's, diff it's a difficult um, thing to balance, I find, it, in my experience, certainly facilitating because, you know, th there is just a group of humans in the room who are complex and have emotional and, like, social lives. And so... To a degree, what's 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 of personal uh, interest normally is of professional interest because the fact that you feel um, upset and scared at work really really matters to your ability to do good work. Like that, that it's it's really it's really not useful to distinguish them, and yet I, I feel like it's important to know that it's important to distinguish, are we not having that conversation because there's just this cultural norm that you don't talk about your feelings at work? Or are we not having this conversation because it's not safe to have this conversation It could actually be hurtful to somebody in the room um, or, or have some, some like unwanted implication? Uh, just, just knowing wh whether, whether to go there or not go there in those, in those moments is, is pretty... It's pretty difficult, but, but really important, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and that's I, that's really interesting to me. What what makes um, your 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 mission? You mentioned about having everyone have the facilitation skills makes that so critical, so that people can develop that art and that sensitivity to know when when to sort of draw, how to, when to push, and when to when to leave it. Mm. Yeah, it's a really a really tough line, I think. Yeah.
All right, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm like looking both at the time and my and my sheet of loads of stuff I want to discuss with you, and and I literally have like a, a, an, another full page of many topics. So what I what I was going to suggest here, because because of time, is that we perhaps organise a part two at some point and and keep going on some other stuff because uh, uh, yeah, to me certainly this has felt like really uh generative and uh yeah just like the kind of conversations that i i like love and live from um and i'd, I'd love to have a, another one of them covering perhaps some of the same topics again perhaps some some new ones that that i can think of yeah what, what are your what are your thoughts before yeah that, that would be excellent i i really enjoyed it and um that'd be great. yeah all right let's do, let's do that then in that case if um uh, I'll just ask you a few like wrap up questions and then we'll we'll arrange to do a, a part two um, cool. on philosophy at work. Yeah, so, yeah, well, maybe just before we before we do finish off, is there anything, is there a last topic that you feel we've not touched on that you really wanted to touch on or perhaps it's related to something that we discussed that that we've not quite not quite finished or or tidied that up yet? Mm. One thing that comes to mind is we've talked a lot about developing ideas. We thought we talked a lot about concepts and uh, you know how we how we refine those and the importance of thinking carefully. We haven't done too much yet on how we communicate those ideas, and mm. that's a place where philosophy intersects with work really significantly because um, you know whether or not you're you're pitching to an investor or you're giving feedback to someone or you're you know, running a meeting or just trying to communicate where a project is up to with someone else. Um, you might not always have to share your deepest ideas about reality or something, but you'll need to be clear on what's really going on. And so um, that's a space that I think is, is, is really interesting and something that, um, so, you know, one of the, one of the things I'll do is um, presentation skills training. Um, but because of where I'm coming from as a philosopher, it's it's not just sort of what do I do with my hands when I'm talking. Um, you know, we we do that as well. But it's sort of saying how do we how do we get our ideas clear and work out what's the point that we really need to make land with the people we're talking to, and how do we practice that so that it comes out better, um, or more articulate, you could say, but not in a sort of I don't know highbrow way. We're just using more complicated words, but so that it's really clear um, we're communicating to. And I think that's that's part of what comes from working on your your thinking. You know, the more that we, the better that we think, the, the larger uh, toolbox we have to draw from. But it's not always the case. You know, I've, I've worked with a lot of philosophy professors that are brilliant thinkers, but not the best communicators. Right, really. Yeah, because I, I would imagine that better thinking leads to being more articulate. Um, and, and, and I'd imagine that being more articulate leads to better thinking simply because you're, you're trying to cut through what you actually mean mm. uh, if you're using fewer words, basically. Yes, that's true. But sometimes the, the focus on working out the ideas can mean that someone is less concerned with the relational element of what's going on between them and the person they're trying to communicate to. So if I, you know, so some of the professors I'm thinking of would say, 
look, I am a, I am someone who's pursuing the truth on this matter. And that's my main, my main goal. Um, you've just got to try to keep up. Right. Um, it's that it's not so, so much about the relationship and that, that just doesn't sound very useful to me. Right. Right. Well, and, but that's, I think that's, um, that's interesting coming from where you're coming from, where you're, you're focusing on facilitation, which is a very relational thing. And the, the goal is um, maybe not even the content of what's being said in the, the session you're facilitating, but the nature of that gathering and the way that people are interacting. And it's very much about, uh, I would imagine, relationships. Um, whereas for someone who is purely doing philosophy or purely doing science, whatever it might be, their aim is to uh, get to the bottom of the thing they're working on. And, and so they would say, well, why, why would I waste time um, making sure that everyone else has their views heard? Or, you know, that's not the point. The point is to get on with something. And, and what I'm doing with philosophy at work is bringing the two together um, so that we can do good thinking and still care about relationships and, and because to go back to what you say i completely am on board with with you that actually the thinking should inform the communication and, and vice versa and um what's at the end of the day what's the purpose of our our thinking um you know, in a particular situation at work it's going to be so that we can um produce a better product or so that we can um have more meaningful work with our colleagues and so it's not just to get to the very bottom of trust or truth or something in that context it's to do good work and that's going to take thinking well but it's also going to take communicating well mm. yeah i'm really I, th I think this is a, this is actually one of the the topics i have for a, a a fuller discussion with you which is just the the role of language in our thinking um like this idea that words shape worlds kind of thing uh, mm. i think is is really really valuable because its implications are on the the quality of the thinking itself as well as you know our, our like social lives and relationships that we have like the way we the way we communicate of course has like a huge impact on our relationships at work and the effectiveness of our ideas and products and services and um whatever other sort of more external elements that we're interested in so i think i think that could be a a field of inquiry for me to bug you with next time as well cool, that's let's right. do it. all right go. that's great um okay well in that, in that case just to um finish off the discussion is there anywhere you would like to send listeners where, where they can find out um more about you and your work yeah thank you it's all there on the website uh which is philosophyatwork.co.uk um also at, at twitter i'm on there as dr brennan jacoby uh, Instagram is philosophy at work as well. Um, and would love to, to see people come along to second home as well on March 5th, uh, for that event of, um, sex, religion, and Brexit. How do we have meaningful conversations about awkward stuff? Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, I'm annoyed I won't be around because I'd love to come to that. Well, where can people find, is there an event bit that they sign up to or are they best signing up to you a newsletter on your site or? Um, yeah, so the newsletter is brilliant. Um, that's on, you know, the bottom, as you might expect of all pages on the website, just click subscribe. I've just clicked, everyone else should join too. Um, um, event, where can they, where can they get that? Yes, yeah, so head over to secondhome.io uh, 
and uh, they've got on, on their events page, their cultural events, uh, you'll find the, the blurb for the event, which is happening on March 5th uh, in their Shoreditch location. Okay, all right, I'll, I'll go and find that too and, and send it around uh, to listeners and to my network as well. Cool, brilliant. Brilliant, thanks so thanks. much for today, Brendan. This has been really fun. Looking forward to doing it again. My pleasure, John. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the How Might We podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by signing up to the newsletter at johnbarnes.me. You can subscribe on your favourite podcast app, but you can also give a star rating. You can share it with your friends on social media or contribute financially on a pay-what-you-want monthly basis through patreon.com forward slash johnbarnes. I'd also love to keep making the podcast better and better and, and really covering topics that my listeners want to hear. So you can do that by sending me feedback and comments to my email. That's hi at johnbarnes.me. Thanks for your time and support. It really means a lot. Take care.